Welcome to Wealth Made Simple with Shaz, where you'll learn how to master your money through business, property, and tax saving strategies. Your host has collectively helped his clients make tens of millions of pounds in additional profits through these strategic approaches to business. Introducing Shaz Nawaz, an award-winning chartered accountant, property tax expert, entrepreneur, and property investor. The best answer, and an accountant and lawyer's best friend, uh, is the answer, it depends. So I think, just let's straighten up that question first of all, Elmira, because the question is, do I do it in a company or an SPV? And, and to, to, just to be clear, an SPV is a company. It, it's, just called a, it's just called an SPV because it's created for a specific and a special purpose. Okay, so if the question is, I have an existing company uh, and do I do it in that company or do I open up a new company? Again, it depends on the circumstances and the situation. I'll try and cover a couple uh, to hopefully uh, add some value. So if somebody has an existing company where they are holding on to property, so buy to let landlord, and they are looking then to do developments, then having a separate company would be a good idea. Uh, if they already have an existing company which isn't doing anything, then they can use that company to do a development. If they are going to do two, three, four, five developments, if I've understood the, the question correctly, then my advice usually is to have a separate company for each development because the circumstances, the scenario, the exit plan, uh, the number of uh, partners, funding, finance, all of those things are going to be different. So it's best not to mix all of that up in, in one company because if something goes wrong with one lender, all the other projects are compromised. And if something goes wrong with one project, all the other projects are compromised. So best to keep them separate. Well, generally speaking, uh, people who have a holding company don't actually hold any assets in that company. That's not the purpose of setting up a holding company. There are some, by the way, by the way, who do, but generally speaking, a holding company sits on top. Uh, so if you think about a, a kind of a, a pyramid, but at the top of the pyramid, you've got one company. And as the pyramid goes down, you've got more companies as it gets wider. Uh, and uh, the holding company never owns any assets per se. Can do, but generally speaking, it doesn't. So I can't see that the purpose of selling the uh, the properties to the holding company. Uh, what what could happen and sometimes does happen is if you've got SPV1, which owns the development, and then you might sell some of the properties and you might hold some of the properties and the properties you hold, you might move them into SPV2. So SPV2 now becomes your permanent uh, company, which holds on to all your assets and therefore becomes uh, your investment company. Generally speaking, generally speaking, it's best not to mix trading and investment. And I'm going to open up a new kind of worms if I go into that, and it's going to become really, really complicated. And I'll, I'll, anybody who see me speak will know that I, I then need a, a, a flip chart and four different colored pens, Elmira, and we're going to be here till half past eleven. So, so generally, generally speaking, is don't mix the two where it can be helped. Uh, secondly, 
try not to sell anything to the holding company to keep the holding company nice and clean the only thing the holding company does generally speaking is hold shares in your other trading or investment company depending on uh, what what the intention is uh, so i would say if you intend to hold then maybe buy just leave them in that particular company depending on how many there are I mean, if there's only one property then it's going to be a costly exercise but if you've got eight or ten properties for example or more uh, in a limited company then running that company in terms of paying accountancy fees and paying for a, a, a tax return isn't going to be a major consideration. Of course, if you've only got one company, then it probably isn't worth it. So that's the first part of your question. What was the second part? Uh, again, that it depends on the situation and scenario. So, so for anybody who's on the call who perhaps doesn't know what PPR is, uh, that's Principal Private Residence Relief. So if you live in a property or you occupy a property, if you occupy it for the entirety, you don't pay any capital gains tax when you sell it. Uh, if you own it for some period uh, or and then you rent it out, for example, then, then, then you get principal residence relief. So, so if you are, Paul, as you say, so we'll take your question as this is, if you are having to move every six months because of work, so let's say you're in Bristol once and then you're in Peterborough, then you're in Leicester and then you're in Birmingham, for example, and you can prove that you're having to move, uh, then you can claim PPR in your new residence if it is your, your only or your main residence. However, if you are attempting to claim PPR because you've got a number of properties, uh, and you're, you're, you're moving around and there's no other, other evidence that that was your main or only residence and you're not moving around just to take advantage of the rules, then it would be problematic. But again, coming back to your question, if you are working somewhere, you'll be on the payroll, I assume, you'll have uh, pay slips, you'll have uh, a, a P60 and other documentation to prove you were working for a particular employer in a particular destination and you were living there and then obviously all the bills are going to be there. You'll change the, your doctor, I assume, to be locally to, to where you are. If you have children, they'll go to a local school. If you're involved uh, in a local community or, or, or with a local church or, or, or so something else, you, you'll have evidence of that. So all of those things there help us understand uh, to that this was your only or your main residence. So there's no limitation or restriction, but there have been cases that have gone uh, through tribunal or the old general commissioners uh, where somebody moved every six to nine months uh, and attempted to claim PPR. If that happens and it's clear that, that that's like an anti-avoidance measure or, or it is, you're trying to gain a tax advantage uh, by using your principal residence relief, then it's not going to work. But based on the scenario you've given me, if you're having to relocate every six months because of work, you should be fine. Yeah, because going back, going back, Elmira, to a number of years, uh, you if you lived in a property, uh, then that uh, period of ownership, there was no tax to pay. Plus, you used to get the last 36 months. So whether you lived in the property in the last 36 months of ownership or not, that used to be tax-free. So that was, people wanted that advantage. That then became 18 months. That's now come down to nine months. You also used to get lettings relief of up to £40,000. That's gone now unless you've let out the property while you were living in it. Uh, so those kind of main advantages where, which could possibly uh, encourage some people to perhaps try and force a particular situation where they claim to live in two or three or four properties over a period of two or three years. Okay, 
that isn't as advantageous now, so it's less likely to happen. Uh, so people won't be doing that. So again, based on Paul's scenario of him having to move because of uh, employment issues, he'll be fine. There, there aren't many scenarios I haven't come across. Sometimes I, people do throw uh, a curved ball, Elmira, uh, which makes it interesting. But uh, this is a scenario that uh, I've come across on uh, a number of occasions. The, the problem you've got is on general standard residential property, you can't claim capital allowances. So if you have a, a commercial property, you claim capital allowances. If you're doing service accommodation and you meet the rules, uh, which allow you to have some of the, the benefits of a trading business, you can claim capital allowances. If you have a standard buy to let property, there are no capital allowances. The only, only uh, slight, not gray area, because it, it's become uh, pretty clear uh, in the last six to nine months, because a case went to tribunal. If you have a HMO, uh, then you can claim capital allowances on the common areas. Uh, and that's about it. So if you're going to buy a, a property, convert it into a residential property, and then rent it out, and it's not a HMO, uh, I can't see how and where you're going to claim capital allowances. It's, it's, it's not going to work. Because as soon as the, as soon as the, the trade, as soon as the, the trade becomes investment, you can't claim the, the, the capital allowances. Okay, est okay, fine. So uh, if, if he has a serviced accommodation uh, business and he meets the rules, uh, then he can claim capital allowances. Now the question is, do I, again, the question isn't that clear, so I'm going to kind of make some assumptions. If the person who's asked the question is, is on the call, please feel free to add something in, in the chat. So Almira, if you keep a, a, an eye on the chat, uh, if, if the person clarifies. So I, 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 from your question, what I understand is you're saying, buy property, convert it, run it as service accommodation. Now, do I keep the properties in one company and keep the, the trading element in a separate company or do I keep it together? I assume that's the question. Uh, and again, the answer is depends because I need to ask a number of questions to understand your motivation and your background and is there a particular exit strategy. Uh, but generally speaking, if you're kind of big into service accommodation, you might want to keep your uh, uh, property separate from your trading business because if something goes wrong in your trading business, you wouldn't want your assets to be affected because you'd want to take advantage of the limited liability corporate veil. Uh, so for that reason, a, a number of operators keep their uh, assets in one company and then they keep their trading in a, in a separate company. Then what you could do is you could enter into a joint venture agreement where you keep some of the profits in your company as in your trading or your operating company and some of the profits go into your uh, company which holds the assets. So now both are trading, one's holding the assets, one's taking the risk by being the operator. So they are responsible for the operational risk and then you can claim capital allowances in the company that holds the assets. So that way you get the best of both worlds. Now what you may have seen is sometimes people may buy the asset in a limited liability partnership and then 
uh, operate their business through a limited company. So that's another avenue available to you. So you can do that. You can have it all in the same one, but the bigger you become, the better it is possibly not better, but, but a bigger reason to maybe separate the trade from the asset. I'm going to have capital allowances. Shall I write them off against my trading income or shall I put them in a, in a separate company? Uh, so again, if you're making large profits uh, and you want to write off those profits against capital allowances, then you could have them in your existing company. But then you've got your assets there as well. You just need to know, David, that if something goes wrong in your company, what uh, anything could happen and you're not, let's say there's some particular insurance cover that doesn't cover you and your company has to go bust, you, or you're going to jeopardize all your properties in that company. So if you do, again, going back to what I've already said is, if you split that and have your assets in a separate company, but then what you do is, let's, let's make it simple. 50% of the income goes into the company which holds the asset. 50% goes into your operating company. So you can then, then claim the capital allowances against 50% of the income that goes into the company which holds the properties. So you'll still be able to write off most of the capital allowances against half the profits. If that's not kind of good enough for you because you're thinking I'm going to have a substantial amount of capital allowances every single year because you're growing and you're buying more units and you're spending more money on uh, fixtures and fittings and other equipment, plant and machinery, then you could have it all in the same company as long as you're aware of the risk. So it, it depends, Almira, because the person who spends the money is the person who uh, can claim the capital allowances. If they don't claim the capital allowances for, for whatever reason, because there are a lot of people out there who own commercial property who aren't aware they can claim capital allowances, uh, they then sell the property to person, so person A owns the property, sells it to person B, and then, and, and then person B finds out uh, that person A hadn't claimed any capital allowances, person B can then claim those allowances. I wanted to share a couple of deals that uh, I have been working on, uh, just to kind of give you a bit of a flavor of the ebbs and flows and the peaks and troughs and to demonstrate to you how things work. Uh, and I'm sure you're gonna resonate because you'll have had experiences where things have worked out, things haven't worked out, and nothing's ever plain sailing in life, generally speaking, but especially so in, in property. And earlier on, uh, when I kind of shared that you should have uh, different developments in different projects. And one of the main reasons for that, of course, is that uh, one thing's guaranteed that something will go wrong or will be challenging in a property development project uh, you, and uh, with my luck, it's usually two or three th three things kind of go wrong and then I, I, I kind of fix them. Anyhow, so the I bought a piece of land without ever having seen the piece of land. And the reason how that happened was I had a friend of mine, Steve, who had a friend of his. They were both developers uh, uh, and his friend was a farmer. We're going we're to call him Dave for, for this evening. And Dave was quite experienced and he said, there's a piece of land in Lincolnshire. If you buy it, Chaz, I'm very confident we'll get the planning. 
uh, and it, it was a, a, a piece of land which is local to where he lives. So he knows the area very well. He's done a number of developments. Uh, he's, he's the kind of guy who, like uh, you said earlier about your previous speaker, Elmira, who's a simple guy, very genuine, somebody who you can trust. Uh, so anyhow, long story short, I bought the piece of land without ever, ever having been there. Then upon the advice of Dave, I uh, employed a local architect and I employed a planning consultant. The planning consultant was the former uh, chairman of the planning committee uh, for the local authority. So he knew a, a bit about planning. Seemed like a very good idea at the time. On their advice, we had uh, drawings made for I think six or five, six bedroom properties with triple garages. And it, I thought, you know, I've made it. Once I sell this development, this is going to be hugely, hugely profitable. I paid £140,000 for the piece of land. The planning uh, cost me about £40,000 uh, plus uh, £12,000 for the planning application. When the application goes in, uh, and I'm keeping an eye on the portal, a few days before the decision is due to be made, I realize there's been about 48 objections. And that's when I think, hold on a moment. I was told this is a very small village with a few people living there. Let me go and have a look. So I go around, count the houses, uh, and lo and behold, there's about 15 houses in that village. And I have no idea how we got to 48 objectors, by the way. I don't know where they came from. Uh, and I then realized, hold on a moment, trying to build six, five bedroom houses or six bedroom houses with, with triple garages when you've got a, a village with uh, 15 odd uh, houses isn't a good idea. Anyhow, that application got rejected. We then came up with a smart idea that we'd employ a new planning consultant. So this time we go to, I uh, say we, this, it was just me, I've dropped Dave and I've dropped the, the planning consultant. I then go to uh, a planning consultant uh, who's based in London. He and I come up with this fantastic idea, uh, employ a new planning consultant, because that seems like a good idea. Having employed the uh, new planning consultant from London, he then comes up with a new scheme and says we should apply for planning for 14 houses. A mix of three and four bedroom houses. We do that. As our planning application goes in, lo and behold, what happens? The local plan changes. And that particular development is now no, no longer part of the local plan. So that planning application gets rejected. And you can imagine now, I'm not a very happy bunny. I spent best part of £50,000 on the first application. I've now spent best part of £35,000, £40,000 on the second application and no end in sight uh, and uh, I'm 250 odd grand lighter. However, the, the, my planning consultant, when he gets the rejection letter, says in there, it says this uh, piece of land is an isolated location. What that means is we can use paragraph 79 and build a house of an exceptional design and apply for planning. Now, because you're from what Elmira tells me, you're all keen to see the slides. 
I'll stop the, the story there. And Elmira, if you can come uh, pull up the first slide, please. And then this, ladies and gentlemen, was the, the property we came up with. So if you go on to the next slide, Elmira. So this is the design of the house. You can see it's a very unique design, the kind of stuff that you'd probably see on grand designs. So if you just keep moving slides, keep moving slides, just to give people an, an impression or an idea of what this particular property looks like. And this is the, this is the inside. This particular slide uh, doesn't do it justice, but you can see the, the, the detail of the work on the, uh, the, on the woodwork is exceptional. So this went in and we had a number of objections. It went to the planning committee and luckily the planning committee agreed that this particular development was good for the area. So after having persevered for best part of two and a half, three years and spent best part of 280 or 90,000 pounds, I finally got the, got the planning. Not what I wanted initially, but in the end, we did get planning on something which is of, of an exceptional design, a beautiful uh, project, and I'm really looking forward to it. So the point I'm, I'm trying to make is sometimes you just got to keep going and don't give up. So if you just stop here, Elmira, that's, that's one which went through just before COVID uh, hit. So I think uh, around about February time. This beauty here, which you can see on the screen is the New England Club. We bought a commercial property uh, and applied for, for, for planning for 12 flats. We, we couldn't use prior uh, approval, unfortunately. And the planning went through for six one-bedroom flats and six two-bedroom flats. So if you go on the next slide now, please, Elmira. We paid 500,000 pounds. So this is the plot. And on the left-hand side, you can see a small bungalow on the top left. Uh, and then you can, the, the area next to the bungalow is the car park. And then you can see it's a massive building. So if you move on to the next slide, please, Elmira, where we'll have some figures. So we paid 500,000 pounds to buy uh, this uh, property. We then uh, applied for planning. So if, if you click two, two, two or three, it cost us 65,000 pounds for, for the planning legals. Uh, the refurb, it will cost us 400,000 pounds, a bit more than 400,000 pounds now. And the interest uh, on the money we've borrowed on the refurb will cost us 52,000 pounds. We paid cash for the property when, when we bought it. So it's gonna stand at us at uh, just over a million pounds, or that's when I last did the numbers. The GDV on it, the gross development value at the time was just over 1.3 million. We'll have to see what happens post COVID and what happens to the valuation, but I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna go into that tonight. Uh, so we're, we're making profit of just over 300,000 pounds, as you can see, which I mean, with all things being equal, by the way, uh, a markup of 30 odd percent isn't bad. Would I do a property development deal with a 30% markup before tax? Uh, I would all day long. I think it, it, it isn't that bad. But I'm now going to go into how we use certain tax reliefs to, in my opinion, to make this a game changer of a deal. So if you go on to the next slide, please, now, Almero, so we can show people. Uh, and if you just click through uh, a few, uh, uh, that's it. So the first thing that you need to bear in mind, if you're not aware, if you're buying commercial property, it may have an option to tax, which basically means is 
that somebody, either, either the previous owner or, or somebody uh, up the chain at some point claimed VAT on some refurbishment costs uh, and opted to tax. So they have to charge VAT. So if, they, so if there's an option to tax, the vendor will charge you VAT on the transaction. If you're buying the commercial property with a sitting tenant, then you can use the transfer of going concern rules and you won't have to pay VAT. However, if you're buying the property vacant and you're looking to convert it into residential property to do a commercial conversion, then you could, you could use the VAT 1614D regulations and not pay VAT on the transaction, but that's something you'll have to negotiate with the vendor. Now the benefits of not paying the VAT, the first obvious one is you won't have to pay the extra or find the extra money to pay the VAT. If you haven't got the money, then you'll have to go to a broker or a, a, a bridging company or, or, or to your bank. They're going to charge you arrangement fees. They're going to charge you interest on the money. That's going to be uh, costly. Above and beyond that, you'll have to pay stamp duty land tax on the total value of the, the purchase. So it, it's going to be the value including the VAT. So if you have to pay VAT, you then have to pay the stamp duty land tax on the VAT. So even more costs are there. Then you'll have to try and get the VAT back from HMRC, which can be a hassle and onerous. So you'll have accountancy fees or tax advisor fees to pay and then try and get the money back from HMRC. So you've got all of those issues to worry about. Whereas if you can do a VAT 1614D, then you won't have to worry about most of those issues. If we move on to the next slide, and if you just click, so, so, and just to stop here, please, uh, Almira. So the, one of the first things we did was claim capital allowances. And if you just click back, Almira, so, so, or next, so we can see that this is the actual list or listing of the different items on which we claimed capital allowances. Now, I can't see the bottom of the screen, but from, if my memory serves me correctly, I think it's about 126,000 pounds worth of capital allowances that we claimed on this particular development. So a significant and substantial number. Now, you, like I said earlier, sometimes the previous owners do not claim capital allowances. In this instance, they hadn't claimed any capital allowances. So we were pretty much able to claim the whole lot, which is a big deal for us. Uh, so please do make sure uh, you consider and think about capital allowances when you're buying commercial property. If you kindly go on to the next slide, please, Elmira. The property had asbestos. Now, if a property has asbestos or other forms of contamination, you can claim land remediation relief if you buy uh, through a limited company. If that happens, you get 150% of the costs back. This particular property had asbestos, which is unknown to us at the time. We paid a ton of money to have the asbestos cleared, a lot of money, and we were able to claim £14,250 in terms of land remediation relief. Above and beyond that, the second thing that we were able to save was on the business rates. So, so when we bought the property, what we did was we were approached by a charity which works with homeless people and they wanted to use the, the property rent-free. So they wanted us to give gift them use of the property uh, until we obtain planning permission and we start developing. So we spoke to the local authority. They were happy for us to do that. Uh, 
And we did that because I was keen not to break any planning rules in terms of uh, giving the, the, the property to a company just in case uh, the planning at the time didn't allow that, which it didn't because we had uh, the, the planning at, at the time wasn't for what the, the use was going to be. Anyhow, the council were, were okay with it because uh, they were doing good work. We did that, uh, but the agreement was that the charity has to pay the business rates. Now, you might know from experience, charities don't pay business rates or, or they get 80% uh, relief. The other 20% is discretionary and you have to apply for that. This particular charity did and the council were happy with all the work that they were doing with the homeless people. So they got 100% business rate relief and we didn't have to pay any business rates and that saved us just over £10,000. The third item on there is incorporation. I'm not going to go into that too much detail right now, but basically when we bought the property, we bought it as a partnership. We then obtained planning permission and then there was an uplift in the value. We then moved that, that uh, project from the partnership into a limited company. There was an uplift in the base cost and that amounted to £150,000. Uh, so in the future, if we ever sell the units, our purchase price is not going to be a £500,000 for, for, for the purpose of making this example simple. It's going to be £650,000 because we had an uplift in the base cost. So we're going to have a corporation tax saving of uh, on, on £150,000, which comes to just over £28,000. The capital allowances that you saw earlier of £126,000, the actual tax saving on that is just below £24,000. So that's significant. The saving on the stamp duty, uh, land tax, and then the interest and the fees we would have paid had we uh, paid the VAT on the property would have amounted to £7,500. So that was a, a big saving. The previous owner wanted to keep some of their equipment because it was, it was a social club. They had snooker tables, fruit machines, that kind of stuff in the property. Uh, but the rent on the property was £42,000 per annum. So it was about £3,500. They weren't keen to pay that. So I did a deal with them and said, you can keep all of your equipment in here for three months and pay me rent discounted at £2,500 as opposed to £3,500. So that got me an extra £7,500 in terms of cash flow. Although obviously, strictly speaking, that is not a tax saving. Now, as we're carrying out the refurbishment work on the property, uh, and you, we're going to pay 5% VAT. So if you increase the number of dwellings, you reduce the number of dwellings, or you're buying a house, for example, which has been empty for two years or longer, you then qualify to pay 5% VAT. Now, not all builders, especially the smaller ones, are aware of this. So they might charge you 20%. You want to make sure you tell them that you should only be paying 5% and not 20%. So the saving on that for us was £20,000. So if you, if, you, if, you, if you click your cursor again, uh, or the arrow please, Almira. So you can see the savings there, including the £7,500 rent, is a, or, or the physical cash saving, amounts to just over £112,000. So if you just, just click again please, and the initial profit was £302,000. So we've had an uplift in profit of 37.12%. That is huge. 
So rather than 302,000 now, we're on best part of 414, 415 odd thousand pounds. So it's a significant improvement by obviously claiming some different allowances through taxation and the seven and a half thousand pounds on the rent. So if you go on the next slide, please, uh, Almira, I think we're nearly there. We've got two slides to go. So if we sell those properties and had we've kept them in our personal names because we bought them as a partnership initially, I've just said if we were 40% taxpayers, I am not a 40% taxpayer, I'm an additional rate taxpayer, but if I, so I pay for, I'd have paid for 45%, but I want to keep it simple. If I were a 40% taxpayer and my two of the partners were 40% taxpayers, on the 302,000 pounds, we'd have paid 40% tax. Uh, that means we'd have paid 121,000 pounds in tax, and that would have left us 181,000 pounds for us three to divvy up, or, or we could have used that for our next development. But you'll recall, because we incorporated and moved the development into a, a limited company, on the, on the £302,000 profit, we're only going to pay 19% corporation tax if we sell those units, which would come at £57,000 or just over £57,000. That means that would leave us £245,000 in the company. Now, we're not going to sell, by the way. I'm just sharing this example with you. If we were to sell, we're not going to sell. Uh, so, uh, so that difference there between two four five and one eight one gives us an extra sixty three thousand pounds tax saving if we were to sell. Add that to the hundred twelve thousand pounds from the previous slide, you can see we've got an adva cash advantage of one hundred seventy five thousand pounds. Add one hundred seventy five thousand pounds to the initial three hundred two thousand pounds. That is massive. So I hope this very quick example demonstrates to you some of the things that can be done with really smart tax planning. None of the stuff that we've done is racy, pacey, risky, uh, or any form of tax avoidance whatsoever. I keep away from all of that stuff and people who've heard me speak will know uh, I make uh, a big issue of saying stay away from tax avoidance. Uh, it's gonna land you in trouble. But all oh, this is plain vanilla, real simple stuff if you work with a tax advisor and a property specialist, tax and tax specialist, who knows what they are doing. So that's my example finished. Uh, Almira, if you go on to the next slide, if people want to keep in touch with me, we have a Facebook group called Property uh, Entrust Property Tax Experts. If you aren't part of the group, please request to join uh, and I'll be more than happy to allow you in. It's a closed group, so you have to request to join. Not everybody can join. Uh, if you're in, if you're in, in business and you want to know about uh, tips, tricks, tools, techniques, I've also got uh, a page called The Profits Wizard on Facebook. Again, like that page and we share lots of content in terms of business. You can, you can subscribe to my channel on YouTube, which is called Shaz Nawaz. Instagram, again, Shaz Nawaz. And if you're on LinkedIn, please connect with me on LinkedIn. Just type in my name, Shaz Nawaz, uh, and I'll be happy to connect with you. And that's me done, Elmira. If there's any more questions, happy to take them. And I once again want to apologize for the technology and all the messing around. I've never had this before in the last 10 years. So hopefully we'll be better prepared next time uh, when I'm joining Hopin. Thanks for listening to Wealth Made Simple. You can follow and contact Shaz on the Facebook pages Entrust Property Tax and The Profits Wizard. You can also find Shaz on LinkedIn, YouTube and Instagram. Alternatively, email him at shaz at aa-accountants.co.uk. 
Build your wealth by mastering money 